why are the reforms perceived as being radical when they don't seem it to the rest of us? Um, I think the most radical element of the reforms is probably the democratisation. I think this speaks to a very anti-democratic um, culture in the British establishment. And I think, I think in a sense they are radical, they're very moderate, but the political consequences of democracy in these kinds of institutions is radical. And I hope what we've done with this pamphlet is to say we want to introduce some straightforward principles that we all accept, but the consequences of which I think will be quite transformative. Welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. We've been away, as is our custom, for a little while, a little while longer than planned, but we're back with what will be some uh, high-value content. Um, since we were last uh, with you, a number of things have happened. Um, Tom, you were speaking in Parliament this week, um, and you were speaking on your chosen special subject, the BBC. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about the talk, which we're going to play? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, there was a panel in Parliament, um, which was on Tuesday, uh, the week that this should be going out, where we were presenting proposals that I, for a, by a working group that I chaired on the reform of the BBC, which was um, housed by the Media Reform Coalition, which does work on, um, well, media reform, as the name suggests, but um, has, has traditionally kind of focused particularly on um, the regulation and ownership structure of the press and are now moving um, much more into the future of broadcasting and digital and so on. So it's been a very interesting step. And the, the, the draft proposals that the working group produced that I chaired were, um, were actually published back in March, but now um, with, with Corbyn having um, endorsed some of these ideas, uh, we worked on uh, this, this parliamentary launch. So we had an event on Tuesday, which uh, Callum from the Media Fund very generously recorded for us. So that's why we're able to uh, bring you the recording. And speaking alongside me was uh, Zoe Williams from The Guardian and Clive Lewis from Labour and Amelia Womack from The Greens. Um, so we're going to play you that tape um, and we hope you find it interesting. Dan was actually present in the audience, but I think possibly will be sort of lurking in the background of the recording. Uh, but I assure you, he's he's also there um, listening in real time. I was, seen, uh, I was in the audience. I was selling Media Democracy pamphlets. Yeah, that um, made an absolute mint. I made, made a, as yet, undeclared fortune from yeah. selling pamphlets. Um, and it was, it was a very, it was a well-attended event, and it was, it was interesting. I mean, the, the queue was absolutely horrendous, not for the event. Like, there were, there were other events going on in Parliament, like, but, but the thing is, like, yeah, you had to wait for, like, three quarters an hour to get in, and the room was still packed full of people, so that was great. There was lively discussion. Um, you sold... How many pamphlets? Well, uh, 30, I think 33 or so. So, yeah. out of, um, I guess they were, what, like 100 people in the audience, maybe? Yeah, around, around 100, and, um, which was sort of the capacity of the room, really. Yeah. And so, so this is the pamphlet that Dan and I worked on for um, called Media Democracy, where we set out uh, more expansive proposals, actually. So, that, that incorporates um, aspects of BBC reform, but we also lay out proposals for a British digital corporation, for the creation of media co-ops, for um, dealing with the existing press and so on. So it's a more expansive kind of uh, proposal. So if you haven't seen that, by the way, um, that's available online or you can buy yourself. Am I right in saying that people can buy a copy from Commonwealth Dan? Yeah, there's a way. There's a way. If you, if you feel the need for paper, um, the idea with the pamphlets was that when people are doing speaker events, it's useful to have something that people can take away or they can read beforehand. The pamphlet itself is one of 14 that was commissioned by Laurie McFarlane of Open Democracy under the title series New Thinking for the British Economy. Um, and he's put together, like, present company except he's put together a really kind of stellar list of, of writers um, mostly UK-based, who are looking at different aspects of a, a new economic paradigm, really, 
Um, and as you say, all of the texts are available online from Open Democracy. Um, you can find a PDF which which kind of collects them all. But we also printed that printed them as separate pamphlets, which are currently in my basement in very impressive numbers. So we will find a way of uh, getting pamphlets to people either just for their own interest or if they want to organise a speaker event. Tom and I, uh, I cover the East Kent area. Tom covers the rest of the UK. <laughs> um, Thanks but, for that, no, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, up and down the country. Tom, up and down like this country, guys, talking to hard-working families about their legitimate concerns about media reform. Um, so that is that. The other thing that's happened in Media Democracy World, which I should flag up, is that I did uh, appear um, slightly breathlessly on uh, Ed Miliband's podcast, Reasons Oh to my God, cheerful. yeah, we've gone, we've gone mainstream. So we have had a, we've dipped our toes in the mainstream, um, and um, that that's available, obviously, via uh, the Reasons In this metaphor, you are the toe of the show. I, I would gladly accept that, in the same sense that... <laughs> In the same sense that East Kent is the toe of the United Kingdom. <laughs> so, <laughs> the toe of the media has been dipped into the... I'm not sure what Ed Miliband is in this. Uh, um, he, yeah, what is he? He's the, um, he's the smiling surface of the mainstream. Who knows? Yeah, well, he's anyway, definitely that. Um, but it did, well, um, that, that went through. It did mean that we, we, we touched on uh, the culture of political personality uh, in that context, and we're going to be talking about that with Jack Frayne Reed um, in an episode which we are just about to record. So, without further ado, next week. By the way, Dan. Yeah. Uh, oh, so it, in case people don't know that that um, podcast, it's reasons to be cheerful. It's um, Ed Miliband's one. It's apparently quite famous. Um, the other thing, Dan, was there was the whole TWT um, business as well. There was. We gave. A, we did a panel together, didn't we, with some some yeah. um, uh, other distinguished speakers, um, which really we will, um, which can be found again. I think on the TWT SoundCloud. Um, yeah, or parts of it anyway. Unfortunately, some of the recordings missing. But... Some of the uh, the two early the two first speakers are missing entirely, and some of the third. Um, but you will get Tom and I, um, <laughs> um, and the questions and if, answers. If, if, you, if, if you want more. Um, there are exactly if you can't get enough of uh, the Tom and Dan Roadshow um, good that is um, that is that and uh, let's roll tape to Westminster and beyond Tom and beyond I'm very well aware that we said we'd finish at eight, so some people will have to leave at eight, I know, including um, one of our panellists. So, but we will, we have the room until 8.30, so we can extend the conversation till then if we need to. But again, um, don't be embarrassed if you have to leave. We recognise the difficult step ones in. <coughs> A very warm welcome. You have landed, just so that you know you're in the right room, in the future of the BBC, public media in the age of Google and Facebook. I'm uh, Professor Natalie Fenton, I'm from a Media and Communications Press at Goldsmiths and I chair the Media Reform Coalition which has put this event on. I think it's an event which is, speaks to one of the most important issues of our time, the role of BBC as a social institution in our public lives, in Britain and worldwide in fact. And you know, the BBC is always seen to be one of the most trusted sources of news, but we all know just how quickly and easily that trust can be eroded um, and fall apart, and then how very hard it is to build that trust back up. We also know how democracies need to endlessly reinvent themselves and revive and re-energise their practices. And so the BBC is no exception to that rule, and in that spirit we are going to be looking at all of the issues that, um, in a supportive a manner, actually, around what the BBC could become, what, what would make it a more democratic institution, how could it serve our democracy better. We'll be touching on themes such as independence. Now, what does independence mean when we're talking about independence from government and independence from the market? How can the BBC be preserved in that frame? What about the many other issues of what it means for us to be 
citizens engaged with the BBC? How does the BBC fit as a public service form of media? I'm not going to say anything more because we've got um, a fantastic panel lined up who are going to cover these issues for us. I'm going to briefly introduce them. They will all speak then um, roughly for about 10 minutes and then we'll open it up for debate. And I hope after your long waiting, you've all been thinking of fantastic questions and comments that you want to make. To my immediate right here, we have Tom Mills. Tom wrote the book, The BBC Myth of a Public Service. If you haven't yet read it, I would really highly recommend it. It is the best book on the BBC, I think, that exists. Tom is also a lecturer in sociology and policy at Aston University. On my left, we have Amelia Womack, deputy leader of the Green Party, who said in her speech to the um, party conference this year, it's time that the political class woke up. She continued, I'd like to think that Rupert Reid won't ever have to explain to the BBC why giving our time to climate deniers isn't balanced debate, it is dangerous. I'd also like to welcome Clive Lewis and thank him sincerely for sponsoring this event. Um, Clive is Labour MP from Norwich South and he has also been a reporter at BBC and was Chief Political Correspondent at BBC Look East. And so Clive has very detailed um, first-hand experience of what it's like to be in the BBC and also wants to see how it can continue to be a great institution. And then on the far side, I don't say the far right, That's right the far right. side, <laughs> we have Zoe Williams from The Guardian. And Zoe has also written about the readiness of the BBC to um, cover developments on the right, but not necessarily to cover them on the left. And so we've got a lot of people with a lot of very interesting things to say. So please join me in welcoming the panel. And Tom, you're first up to speak. Thanks everyone. Um, thanks Natalie for having me and thanks to the other panellists for speaking. Sure, I can, if it will help me project better. Um, thanks for braving the queue. Um, I don't think I've been in the queue that long since Chess and World Adventures in the late 90s, so <laughs> I hope I live up to uh, the expectation. Um, what This uh, pamphlet here, which you can find online, is, which is what we're launching today, um, was a uh, collaborative effort which uh, I chaired the group which produced it. So the first thing to say is that this was a, a, a joint endeavour and so I'm going to be speaking as to what's in the pamphlet but also the problems which we were trying to address with the pamphlet. So you can obviously read it. I thought what might be useful was for me to talk a little bit about the, the context because this is really, I think it, it, it's great to be thinking about the BBC and thinking about the media um, prescriptively to be thinking what are we going to do about these institutions not only to critique which is you know fairly familiar on the left at least and I think in a, in a different way on the right but to think about how what are we going to do about these institutions how can we make them better and how can we make a stake on the future and I think we're at a very exciting kind of moment politically where we're actually trying to to, to think in those terms so I thought it would be it would be useful for me to start with talking about what is the, the, the context we're trying to address here with these sets of proposals and although I think you can't quite divide uh, the technological from the political in any sort of clear way, we can maybe think about them um, in turn. So technologically speaking, um, central to these proposals is the idea of the BBC moving into the digital age, and that's absolutely central to what we're proposing. Now, the context here has to be, in everything we're talking about, not just on the BBC, but what's going on in the broader political system, in the broader media ecology, if you like. And in that respect, we're responding to a set of changes which have been going on for the last two decades or so, um, a series of technological changes around the internet and now, of course, around portable devices and so on, and the digital news media, which has had a very radical effect on how we communicate and how we consume um, not only news, but entertainment and so on. And uh, so what, what's really happened there is that business models, particularly in the news media, haven't really found a way of trying to figure out how they're going to navigate uh, this, this, this new space. So the situation we have now is the rise of these large platforms, these multinationals, which aren't democratically accountable, which are taking revenue from the traditional media systems. 
So what we're trying to do with these proposals is make a democratic and public claim on that digital future, which at the moment is being laid out for us. And what we want to do about that is to try and say, okay, if we want to make a public and democratic claim on that future, what do we want to preserve from the existing institutions and what do we want to change? So that means, first of all, recognizing some of the technological problems, and there are all kinds of things that get discussed in other forums to do with you know, fake news and, uh, and bubbles and all the rest of it, which I think the BBC can, can play an, an important role in. Um, but the other element of this, of course, is the, the, the political element. Now, I just wanted to make, say briefly on the technological aspect uh, and funding models. The BBC actually has a very efficient funding model for the news media. And the reason is that if you ever want to monetize a product in a digital economy, you have low marginal costs. So that means in order to monetize it, you have to prevent other people consuming it. Now, in that respect, public media, public digital media, is a very efficient system if we have something publicly funded at the point of production and freely available to everybody. Universal access being a fundamental principle of the BBC. And a lot of people have pushed back when I talk about media reform and often ask, why can't we just have the BBC moving to a subscription service? That is not public media. Okay? That is a different type of offering. And what we're trying to preserve here from the BBC, one of the principles is one of open access. We, 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 we own this collectively. And this has to be a very different type of institution um, to the BBC that we, that we have already, which for, for reasons are, are lay out. But that, that's one important principle. Um, now, the other one is that uh, related to that is that if we want to have a democratic public media, that means that everybody has to have access to this information which underlines our democracy. So these are all straightforward reasons. Now, onto the political context. Well, the existing institutions, the existing media landscape, um, prior to the rise of Facebook and Google, which are drawing advertising revenue away from the private media, has meant that privately funded media doesn't appear to be sustainable or hasn't developed a clear business model. Now, maybe it will be able to flourish behind paywalls and the rest of it. That's still a possibility. But in that case, again, if we have to have that principle of universal access, everybody participating in the democratic life of a society. And that's where the BBC, uh, that's where the BBC comes in. Other political problems. I'll come on to the BBC, but in terms of the traditional or the legacy media organizations, we have um, a high concentration of ownership. And this has been a story for much of the 20th century. Increasingly, that with the press, you have concentrations of political power, you have a partisan media, and you have a media that isn't reporting accurately. Now, this is a very important principle that I think needs to be preserved from the BBC. A certain professional commitments to accuracy, um, to impartiality, let's say, uh, very broadly construed, or at least fairness and balance. These are principles which I think we should preserve and update for, for the digital age. Now, what are the other particular problems? Now, what we recommend here is a shift in terms of the funding mechanism away from television license. And the reason being, of course, that nobody's going to watch television. The BBC has been pegged to, was first to radios, then to television, and what we're suggesting is a digital TV license as part of a broader democratic claim on our shared digital space. Now this is important because this, isn't, this is moving away from the idea that we will be paying for access to BBC programs. That's not what we're suggesting. What we're suggesting is, in principle, we have a shared digital space which is part of our society and we are making a claim on that. And the digital license would be part of that and the BBC is also part of that. But the, the, the principle that the BBC should be part of that future digital ecology, we think, has to come with some kind of system for democratic accountability and ability to deal with some of the problems that uh, exist with the BBC. Now, the model, of course, for the BBC is that you had accountability, democratic accountability. The model there is to Parliament, uh, effectively to number 10, and to the political elites, and then broadly to the political establishment. So, when we're thinking about the problems with the BBC, and there are many problems with it, and then there are many things that we'd like to preserve, number one that we deal with in here is the question of political accountability. Now, there is some kickback on this question, and I'm glad that Jeremy Corbyn has publicly committed uh, in, in his speech to the idea and the principle of democratizing the BBC. All we are saying in this pamphlet is 
that in terms of the governance of the BBC, it shouldn't be people who are appointed by government making decisions independently of the government, but we would democratise it jointly through the staff working at the BBC, so that's the staff, the journalists, the people working um, in all kinds of areas in the organisation, and of course the, the BBC does a lot of things which aren't related to news journalism, which tends to be the focus of a lot of um, the work that I've done. Those people would be appointing people to boards and so would the licence fee payers. Now this sounds radical, but actually it's what the BBC says that it does. It says it's accountable to licence fee payers and not to the government. And that's the principle that underlines what the BBC does. What we would like to do is actually make that a political reality. So rather than the BBC being accountable to governments, which in all honesty, we know from historical record, is what the BBC does, it would be accountable to the public. Why do we want to make this what appears to be, at least to the political elite, to be a radical change? I mean, first of all, it's not very radical. Secondly, there are problems with the BBC, which often get obscured by the fact that the rest of our media is absolutely atrocious. Now, the BBC reports, ten, the BBC's news reporting, its journalism, tends to reflect powerful interests in society. Now, that's not my opinion. I have opinions, and you know, if you're interested in them, come and ask me about them afterwards. This is the finding of decades of research on what the BBC does. It's not so different to other broadcasts or media organisations. We have an organisation with a small c conservative culture, that's what all the research tells us, which is tied to the British state in a number of ways. And what we want to do is take this institution, take it out of the shadow of the state, and put it into civil society so it belongs to the people who work there and the people um, in the public to whom it is accountable. Okay, so that's one of the central principles. Now, the other principles which we lay out in the pamphlet, um, so that's the, the independence question. It has to be independent of politicians and the state. That's something the BBC claims to do anyway and to be accountable to the public. We recommend democratisation, but not just democratisation at the top. We need to have a radical reorganisation of the institution that pulls it away from the... Um, from the world of Westminster, which has shaped the BBC's reporting, away from Whitehall, away from the British state, and away from London, because we need an organisation which reflects the UK in all its diversity. And for that reason, we suggest that the BBC needs to be devolved to the nations and the regions at the level of production, with the programmes made available across the country. And that's really important, because what that means is there's a... Pro there's a um, uh, the BBC would be moved closer to the people it's supposed to represent, but it still stays as part of a national conversation so that we can all understand each other and other parts and places in the country which the BBC is supposed to represent and which the BBC is supposed to represent to the world um, in a number of ways. Now, so that's the digital licence fee, democratisation, and there's the question of regulation. So if the government isn't setting the level of licence fee, then who's going to do it? Well, we say that we need to have a non-market regulator acting in the public interest that would perform that particular function. The BBC would have to be put on a statutory footing. There are various elements of the BBC that have tied it to the state, and we just say demolish them, get rid of them altogether. This includes the uh, decades or every 11 years renewal of the charter, right? When the BBC was founded, it always kept on this short leash where every 10 years it would have to go back to the government and ask to exist for another 10 years. We say we will put it on a statutory footing and make it permanent. We will not have the government appointing people to the BBC board and we will not have the government setting the level of the licence fee. The theory with the licence fee is that money comes from the public and it's them who the BBC represents. But the BBC, in actual fact, uh, has its licence fee set by government. So what we have here is a series of proposals um, which relate to decentralisation and then a very important principle of diversity where the staff have to represent the diversity of the UK and that gets incorporated into elections to the board. And then finally, we talk about the question of commissioning. Now this is an important principle that we need to think of the BBC as being part and parcel of a broader media ecology and it has to set the standards for that broader non-market media ecology and that means providing training for the broader industry but it also means the commissioning process of the BBC, when you watch things on the BBC, they're often not made by the BBC. They're made by private media companies, large multinationals. And what we're saying is we can repurpose that commissioning process to, uh, for, so that the BBC should be commissioning to locally based um, cooperative small producers and not these large media multinationals which are currently producing a lot of BBC content which won't necessarily be ser um, serving the public purpose. So it's a vision of a BBC 
which will make a claim on the digital future, but will address some of the problems, long-standing problems with the BBC. And I hope it's part of a much broader conversation about what we need to do with a very, very important, and I think in some ways rightly treasured institution that people are very worried about. Um, and if you're interested with problems with the BBC, have, by all means, have a read of my book. And any uh, thoughts about uh, what we might do about that, let us know. I will leave it there for questions. Thank you very much. I'm going to hand straight over to Amelia. I think you should dash off there, but it's not good to Zoe. Oh, okay. Zoe, are you ready? Um, yeah, I'm totally ready. Although, there's always danger if I speak before Amelia that I'll steal all her points. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, um, no I won't, I'm not going to talk about the environment at all, even though I think the environment does produce, does present the best example. Shall I stand up? It's the best example of the thing which everybody criticises the BBC for, which is taking its impartiality stance more seriously than taking, than choosing a side. Um, but just to kind of scroll back a little tiny bit and say, because I knew everybody here would know more than me, I decided to approach this from a kind of gestalt emotional level and say, what is wrong with the BBC's heart? Because there is something wrong with its heart. And what I was looking for a second ago, and it wasn't because I wasn't listening to Tom, because I was, was the, what, the tweet from Newsnight about why they had Tommy Robinson on without you know, using his own publicity shot, calling him by his made-up name, basically playing into his entire agenda. And then they wrote this very kind of pearl-clutching, splenetic tweet saying, the job which is not the job of the BBC to pretend things aren't happening when they are. As though in questioning the validity of giving so much airtime to fascists, you were not only kind of undermining their impartiality as journalists, but under undermining also the purpose of journalism. And of course it's not the job of the BBC to pretend things aren't happening when they are, but it's also complete horseshit, because there are things that are happening that the BBC will readily ignore every single day of the week. And the problem, I think, there is a problem when they won't choose a side in the interests of impartiality, but there is also a problem when they do choose a side, because they choose the wrong side. And I think what we can see certainly in the kind of political developments of the last two years, is repeated choosing of the wrong side in every situation until they are giving uh, far-right fascist organisation more serious consideration than they're giving a 500,000-strong reinvigorated Labour Party. And that is extraordinary to me, but it is also very interesting because you can kind of see the grains within it of where they're coming from. Now, you know, we're always always complaining just on a kind of sofa level, um, i.e. not from within the Labour Party. I don't know what conversations they're having in the Labour Party. But just a kind of viewer level, we're always complaining about the kind of total failure to give Corbyn any credence at all or, or any kind of fair hearing unless there's an election on. Um, the problem is, you've got, it's very difficult to say that because it sounds so whiny. You know, as soon as you're saying, why won't the public broadcaster give this person a fair hearing? It's like, well, if you had a decent case, you would, you would get a fair hearing. But it was not unusual at all, it still isn't, to see a panel show, a current affairs panel show, with three voices, one right wing, one centrist, and one centre-left, if whom the centre-left person hated Jeremy Corbyn the most. And you think, this is really peculiar. You've got a kind of genuine resi resistance to representing any kind of allegiance to the opposition. So you're kind of, there, there, there's almost a kind of resentment of the fact that there are, there are voices coming from the left of the accepted left. And I don't think it's because there's an anti-Corbyn conspiracy at the heart of the BBC. And nor do I think that there's a pro-Tommy Robinson conspiracy at the heart of the, of the BBC. And nor even do I think that the Daily Mail have got them by the nuts so comprehensively that they're too scared to do anything that the Daily Mail wouldn't expressly approve. I think there's something more interesting going on, which is that there is a kind of group consensus within the kind of liberal media that they represent normal liberal thought. And then anybody coming in from the left of that is seen as as more than a threat, it's seen as, it's seen as a, a kind of insult. It's an insult to mainstream liberalism when momentum kind of come up and 
have other ideas. It's an insult to mainstream liberalism when anything to the left of what you consider liberal is presented. And it's very, there's a very familial dynamic where they'll, where they'll be much more respectful to the views of the completely lunatic opposite neighbour than they will to their cousin who's shaved one side of their head. It's like there's a, there's a kind of, we're in the same family, therefore how dare you say anything so outside the bounds. And when you see, when, when I see the kind of BBC and the way they defend themselves, it does remind me very much of kind of centrist MPs challenged by their own new members. And it is, it, it is a kind of genuine scorn and anger to it. Because, you know, any, in a normal democratic situation, you've got, you'd get like a thousand new members, some of whom were actually young, you'd be delighted. But in the, in the politics we're in at the moment, an MP gets uh, gets a thousand new members, and they're absolutely appalled. They're like, "You don't care about electability. I'm trying to be realistic. You're trying to derail the project." There's a kind of real, a real kind of emotional hurt you can hear when a when a kind of influx of new ideas come outflanks a kind of centre left voice from the left. And I genuinely think that the that the answers are quite. I mean, this is going to sound really, really hippie and tree-hugging, but I think I don't think the answers for that kind of emotional hurt are going to come from a straight debate. Why don't you give more airtime to environmentalists and to climate change deniers? Why don't you give a fair amount of airtime air to the opposition, even if you disagree with it? I don't think that straight emotional debate, I don't think that straight kind of rational debate is going to work, because... They, they're, they're so kind of emotionally invested in the fact that they are impartial, even when they say they aren't. And I think we do need a more kind of radical reconciliation agenda. <laughs> Sorry, this, I mean, this is really strange, but a long way from the kind of um, sensible prescriptions. But I think that there, isn't, there, there isn't very much space here for people to thrash out a difference which is so baked in, because I don't think anybody on a BBC News team would accept any charge of bias in any circumstance. And I don't think anybody who feels biased against would accept in any circumstance that the BBC isn't a complete racket. So in order to find some space between those hardening positions, we need to find a kind of reconciliation space between them where we say we actually don't, we, we, we don't need to resolve those, those two things. What we need to do is, is, is find a kind of a way to accommodate each other as a kind of family on the left, which doesn't involve listening to a kind of far-right fascist over a perfectly legitimate momentum group. You know, it's absurd. Um, I mean, as for the kind of final point I'd make is that I don't want to, I don't want to overbait this, but fascism is on the rise. You know, Nigel Farage did go on TV and say the Jewish conspiracy was more dangerous than the Russians. The Boris Johnson does openly use racist, Islamophobic images in order to kind of... Fascism is... It's everywhere. And, and it's a kind of vampiric narrative, really. You kind of keep them out by not inviting them in. And you keep them with garlic. Um, you don't... If you, if you, there, is a, there was a point. There was a purpose to, to ejecting these people from the public sphere. There was a purpose to not bringing people into the debate with difficult views like Britain for the British. There was a purpose to reject them from the debate because actually we're quite good at a rule-based rejection of fascism. But once the vampire's in, it turns out we're not very good at hand-to-hand -hand combat with the vampire. You know, we're much they're much stronger when it when they come into the argument because they say simple things and they cannot be rebutted. So there was a purpose to that inoculation. And there was a purpose to those barriers. And it's astonishing and tragic to me that it's been forgotten by the BBC. But I don't think we're going to nail it by attacking them. Although, you know, I'll attack them slightly. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lily. We've still got 20 minutes. I'm going to pass over to Amelia. Thank you, Amelia. I feel like it's an incredible evening that we're here in the Palace of Westminster, with, uh, one of the great British institutions, to talk about the BBC, one of the great British institutions, and then we had to queue 
for such a long time. <laughs> Another great British institution. So, um, I think that when we talk about the BBC, it holds, as, a, as an institution itself, it holds such a special place in all of our hearts. However much we might criticise it, however much we know it needs to be improved, we want it to improve because we realise that it can be a force of ensuring that we do have uh, a media that operates outside of markets, outside of the market essentially. We grew up watching children's televisions free from having to watch adverts, making us want to consume more toys or, or more fast food, depending on which generation you're, you were in. And I think that that feeling of the BBC and what it means to all of us is such a powerful thing. Because we know that if we want the best for the BBC, that we need to reform it. At the moment, I feel like um, we have analog policy for digital age, and the BBC is often is, is really at the heart of that. I remember the first time that I lost faith with the BBC. I'm such an advocate for media reform myself, and um, I've been looking. At, I, I really believe that a healthy democracy is an informed democracy. And media reform is right at the heart of that. I don't think I'd always looked at the BBC as uh, an institution that needed such a strong reform and to be cracked open to see where the problems were. The day I lost that faith was um, in 2009, when maybe like other people here, we were at the protest uh, for, the G for the G8, and um, Ian Tomlinson was killed as a result of a, a, a police um, an attack on him by the police. The BBC covered this with report after report of the, the casual observer. The reports were, I saw it all, he was on drugs. He was one of those smelly lefties. He barely had, he, he looked like he hadn't washed for a week. I definitely think there was something wrong with him. And then it turned out, hours later, that a family man, a local business owner, had been brutally murdered. And the report, initial reports, had been so quick to try and pick up a story that it missed what was at the heart of it. And I think, for me, this really shows where media often goes wrong, the sensationalism of media, and not, that's not just for the BBC. There are a number of different areas where I'd like to see vast improvements um, from both the BBC and media in general. Um, it would be no surprise, as uh, Zoe pointed out as well, but the environment and climate change is such a fundamental aspect where the BBC is continually getting it wrong. And um, my other point is around women and the representation of women. And even as a woman in politics, the amount of airtime that we get to discuss important issues. We don't need to look any further than the EU referendum campaign to see a campaign led in the media by men, enabled by the BBC and other media outlets. For me, when you look at the environment to begin with, it is very clear that when, um, as in my conference speech, that when you are put in a position where, when you're talking about climate change, that you're put with a climate change denier, you're completely undermining science, you're completely, and you're feeding people false <coughs> information, and it means that you then have to, you're put in a position to have a debate about climate, if climate change is real, rather than having that really important debate of, and what are the solutions? Because as political parties, we do have different ideas of what some of those solutions are. We have different priorities for those solutions, and we should be given the opportunity to debate those so that we can start creating that roadmap towards a future where we aren't going towards 1.5 degrees of warming and making sure that we are protecting this planet for future generations. That's why I say that when you bring climate change deniers on, it's dangerous. That's when, when Andrew Marr says, that just this Sunday, if climate change is real, it's dangerous. <laughs> In 2014, they invited someone from the, uh, to debate a climate change denier um, who was part of a lobby who was basically trying to prevent climate change in the interests of big business, sorry, prevent climate change policy in the interests of big business. The Wombasens, the very people who actually fund a lot of the media um, and, and often get far too much of a, 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 a mouthpiece on these issues. But it goes beyond that. <coughs> it's not just about climate change. The environment in general is sorely missed in debates. And um, it, it just it, even if you look at the, um, the uh, last election, Caroline Lucas wandered around uh, Westminster with a big green question mark. 
I'm going to take, I'm going to leave the word wandered because I can't imagine <laughs> Caroline doing anything mm-hmm. aimless actually. Mm-hmm. She was striding around Westminster with her big green question mark, challenging the fact that the BBC and other media outlets just had not covered the environment. Mm. If you look to 2015, the Greens didn't even get a point, a place on the debates, the leaders' debates, but then eventually as a result of grassroots action, as a result of I'm sure people in this room petitioning, we actually had that opportunity to go on and put our message across. And I think that this, this is, um, I, I actually, one of the reasons, it's, it, I think that probably for people know me in this room, they'll realise that I spent a lot of time actually outside the BBC with petitions for better coverage of Greens because it, it does compare to the fact that Nigel Farage can be on questions now mm-hmm. 20 times before we get one Green. It just highlights the fact that there is an absolute gap between the representation of one party compared to another. A party that um, in, the last, in the 2015 general election, the Green Party got 1.1 million votes and one MP. The SNP got 1.6 million votes and 56 MPs. Um, and actually you could got 1.4 million votes and didn't get any, but we still get less airtime yeah. in any kind of comparison of any of those groups, even though we had such a close proximity in terms of our vote share. With this, this um, again, is dangerous. That silver bullet that Nigel Farage puts out for all for people's problems being uh, if you leave Europe and if we uh, get rid of migrants, that will solve all of your problems, meaning that then it's that we can't have a real debate about austerity and many of the reasons why people are concerned in their communities due to a lack of housing, due to issues in, in, in a um, uh, lack of investment in education, um, due to their concerns about the NHS. And when it comes to women as well, I think that we need to be looking at stronger representation. We've seen reports coming out talking about the gender pay gap in the BBC. I think it's really interesting that obviously we had a Claudia Winkleman um, on, our, on, the, on the front page of our newspapers as the highest earning woman in the BBC. And I think it's very easy to just look at the, the people who are at <coughs> the forefront of this debate and forget about the people behind. Because unless we have diversity in terms of script writers, journalists, reporters, people who are writing the television shows, the, the, the richness that we have in our society, whether that's our richness of gender, ethnicity, sexuality, is not going to rep- get represented <coughs> in the shows that are meant to be reflecting our communities. And I think it's so vitally important, these steps of ensuring that we are looking to measure and to manage that diversity, to ensure that the voices, the, the incredible diverse voices that we have here in the UK are listened to and stories that are relevant to our lives heard. Beyond that, when it comes to politics, um, I feel that uh, women who are put um, within uh, political shows and news shows are often silenced a lot faster than their male colleagues. And I'll tell you a story that's actually from Channel 4 News, but <laughs> it's, it's a good story, and it's not that it's dissimilar to other experiences I've had, but um, I was on uh, with Jon Snow, and the question was, why aren't there more women and young people in politics? So I look down the line and I'm like, only woman on the panel, youngest person by, I'm going to be polite and say 10 years. And I was like, this is my question. This is like, I've got the perfect answer because this is my lived experience. And they were like, went to, to Labour, uh, Hilary Ben, what's your, why aren't there more young women? Then went to the Liberal Democrats, then to the Tories, then they went to UKIP. And then John Snow said, that's all we've got time for. <laughs> um, join us next week. And um, I think that this is so... Like, no one who watched that show realised um, what had happened. Everyone was saying, why are you talking to Hillary Ben in such a kind of angry manner? I was so annoyed that I got cut off. But they noticed that I was talking to Hillary and they hadn't noticed that I hadn't answered the question. And there's so much that we don't notice when we have a society that eliminates the voices of some groups of people. And there's so much that we just take for granted because we see it all the time and we get so used to it, whether that's people shouting over the, the top of, of women's voices or whether that's um, even cutting them off before they've got a chance to speak. Um, we need to be making sure that we're challenging diversity. And I mentioned the Brexit debate because I do feel like tech enables a debate amongst primarily men. Um, but on an issue that will hurt women more. Um, I mean, the, the diversity issues go down further when you think about uh, 
um, that how it will hurt women of colour, how it will hurt disabled women, and ensuring that those voices are also heard. Um, we need to be making sure, and on top of that, I really think that we need to be challenging the fact that you cannot put a cost on culture as well. And lots of the things that we talk about around the BBC, I feel like, is trying to put a, a price on a cultural value that we have as a result of this incredible institution, this institution with incredible opportunity. But what it needs to do is be working for people, to be brought to the lowest, le uh, the, the closest level to um, our communities, to our regions, um, to making sure that we do have um, that we, we do have this great, incredible media outlet that just isn't about market forces, but it's about creating a richer, more vibrant conversation. And the opportunities there are endless, but they're only endless if it's reformed. Thank you. waiting in the queue for hours if there, there are seats if you want to squeeze in while um, there's one here and there's a couple here I'm conscious you've probably been standing up on your feet in a queue forever so for our final speaker there's one right at the front here as well easier to get into probably thank you so for our final speaker Clive Lewis yes, thank you very much um, Pleasure to see you all making it tonight, eventually. Uh, I can see your eyes are glazing over, so I know you want to have to kind of champing at the bit to get involved in this conversation. Um, so I'll be quite brief. Um, I just wanted to just quickly pick up what Amelia said there, and something that struck me, which was about the fact the number of votes you get, the frequency with which the Greens uh, appear on our, our television screens. And I think it simply reflects that a broken political system in terms of the voting system we have, which is truly unrepresentative. Um, and I think in many ways the BBC is a reflection of that in our true political parties. Doesn't mean the BBC can't strive to be better. Um, but my first job in the BBC wasn't actually as a, a BBC News trainee, which I got onto eventually after being a journalist. It was a, um, I don't tell me about this, but I'll let you know. It was as a part time security guard at BBC Way. That was uh, my first case. <laughs> of the BBC, it's all been down and off and there. And I worked at the BBC for 11 years, finally becoming chief political reporter uh, in politics um, at BBC East. And eventually I just decided that during uh, the first election of the Secretary Government, remember in 2010, I'm going to run out of patience explaining to people how long the vote is that's going to hang them. I wanted to cut the vote. Uh, and that's why I kind of made a jump into politics. And, um, you know, now I'm here in Parliament with a real chance, you know, looking at this kind of uh, reform here. We're on the cusp of some of big changes in this country. It's been touched upon. Um, it could go horribly wrong, uh, as some, many people may think that it, it could, um, but it could, it's also on the, we're on the precipice potentially of great change for the better. I know which one I'm working towards, I know which one I want it to be. Um, but you know, the question about this whole reform process and about this document that's come out from the Media Reform Coalition, which I think is fantastic, is you know, why is this important? Well, what, what role does the media play? The media is, you may have heard of the term, the fourth estate. It's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an institution, if you want. The BBC is an integral part of that, which holds power to account. It's meant to disseminate information, to allow for pluralism, to allow for debate. And if that's not working, that's part of the, kind of, the undercatch of democracy. If that's not working, the wheels begin to come off the wagon. And I think that's why having the BBC, it's one of those areas where the BBC is one of those areas where we can have a direct influence. It's a lot more difficult to begin to influence how Murdoch runs his newspapers, um, how billionaires run their media organisations, but we can have, and should be able to have, a democratic say, a real say, over how the BBC operates and the parameters of which it operates in the 21st century. So, I mean, look, a little bit of history, and, uh, and much of this is from reading Tom's book, which is brilliant. Um, but you need to look at the genesis, the history of the genesis of the BBC to understand um, why perhaps it's like it is. Um, the BBC started out as a corporate consortium uh, of radio labels back in 1923, BBC Limited. Um, it then, basically, under John Reed, established itself. Um, its modern relations kind of generated by helping with then Home Secretary Winston Churchill break the 1926 strike. So mm. uh, journalists were, uh, print journalists were striking. They weren't producing, they weren't producing the news, they weren't producing the propaganda that the government wanted. And so he turned to uh, 
said John Reed, John Reed kind of stepped in and saw an opportunity for the BBC to ingratiate itself with the establishment. And, and I would argue that, um, in many ways, it's never really deviated from that um, to varying degrees, but it's where it is now. So I welcome the proposals. I think it's not just because we have a badly needed debate uh, in this country on what on that become all the more stark in recent years. It's been touched upon by me and others. You know, there's a political pressure cooker at the moment with Brexit, uh, with the rise of the kind of giant uh, data organisations, Google, Facebook, with the rise of corporate power, on all of this to the backdrop of climate change and biodiversity loss, which is acting as a kind of added, an added factor in that pressure cooker. So the stakes are really high, and having a BBC that's functional, a BBC that is accountable, a BBC that is transparent, I think is critical at this juncture, critical at the stage, and critical if we're to go into the 21st century with a modern, vibrant democracy which has the tools to be able to actually function properly. And that's what the BBC has to be a part of. And I think uh, this report kind of goes down that goes down that path very well. So just, just a couple of points that have been raised: democratisation. Um, so we're talking about if you looked at if you've looked at the report, we're talking about actually it was touched upon having some of the workers from the BBC, staff of the BBC, working uh, as part of the kind of decision-making mechanisms of the BBC, working in conjunction with the public, the licensees, the it's a cooperative of sorts. And that kind of chimes in with the direction of travel that uh, the Labour Party is now moving in, which is, I mean, John MacDonald says, you know, basically, that we're looking at a decisive and <coughs> marking shift in the balance of power between capital and Labour. We're not talking about tweaking neoliberalism. We actually want to fundamentally change it. And I think if we're going to do that to kind of the, the private sector, the other parts of the economy, the public sector as well, in terms of how train operators are working and so on and so forth, I think we have to look at the BBC. So this chimes in with the direction of travel and where the Labour Party is going. It actually chimes in the direction of travel where Theresa May was going three years ago. I know she was talking about uh, work with representation on boards. <laughs> she then did a U-turn on that pretty quickly, died there pretty soon after. But I think there is a, a hunger, and you can see now, with the end of austerity, that there is a new consensus that is being born. And I think it's for us to begin to shape what that looks like. So democratisation of the BBC, I don't think. Two years ago, I think, it could have been seen as outlandish. I was saying earlier, <laughs> two years ago, I was at a, a, the World Transformed, the first World Transformed, and I was telling her, someone asked me about how can we reform the BBC. And off the top of my head, I said, well, why don't we, why don't we have licensed UK as elected director general? Now, obviously, these, um, this sort of goes a lot further in terms of widening and broadening out in a far better way than that. But I thought it off the top of my head. And, um, you know, within, within, within hours, you know, I had Marina Hyde, and your colleague, kind of, kind of, Haughtily poo pooing my ideas as completely mad. It's only later that I found out she's married to a senior BBC executive. I wish I'd known at the time when she was tweeting me because I would have put that in there. But I think now the fact that these arguments, uh, mm. I think, are increasingly going, you know, increasingly going to become mainstream arguments that I think could potentially find themselves, or will find within the Labour Party, uh, a very, very um, good hearing because mm. I think this chimes with. The direction of travel, that democratisation, not just uh, not just of uh, not just of our, our not just of society generally, but also of the means of production and the mechanisms through which we empower ourselves and our societies in power. So yeah. I think it ties in with that. Um, I think also as well, if we ensure that we have um, enough black people and ethnic minorities in that board, on that board and women, then you'll also find that the pay gap, the gender gap gender pay gap, the race pay gap in the BBC, who is on the BBC, who is funding the BBC, who is writing the scripts, who is commissioning the BBC, that would change. Because if the people make, helping to make democratic decisions look, uh, well, the people who are making democratic decisions begin to look varied, begin to look uh, diverse, then I think that will trickle down into the rest of the BBC, and I think that's a good thing. So, you know, at the moment, the BBC, if you look at the people who run the BBC, it's predominantly white men. Um, and no surprise, you know, most of the highest paid anchors, commissioners and so on, are also uh, white men, many of whom went to very similar schools. So if you want to break that hole, then change uh, the makeup of those who are running the BBC. Um, I think we've touched on as well this whole notion of, 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 of new models of journalism. I'm, I'm, very much, I'm very much up for this. I think the days of when, as we currently have, which is, okay, he says, she says, we have to have balance. Actually, if your role is to hold power to account, like John Hilder talks about, 
then actually you have a new standard for journalism, which is that it doesn't say that uh, you know you give climate deniers the same platform as those who are campaigning about climate change. You know, you would not expect to see the BBC, the BBC now, say, well, you know, we're saying that cigarettes cause cancer. I guess we should have someone on from the cigarette company to say, well, actually, you know, this isn't actually the case. Well, we won't do that because the science tells us quite clearly that cigarettes cause cancer. Well, the science is telling us quite clearly that carbon produces climate change. You know, it's a no-brainer. So I think it was touched on really well by Zoe that actually the BBC needs to move away from that and move away to move to one which actually is about more about challenging power um, where the, the kind of moral consensus of the day the liberal consensus I think is uh, and I think that's, um, that's something that, that should be appropriate I think in terms of um, the new ideas on using the BBC to challenge those, he those increasingly hegemonic powers of Facebook of Google I think this, this and those corporate interests I think this begins to touch on that and you spent quite a lot of time talking about that Tom I thought it was fantastic I, I hope Tom Watson is going to listen to your recording of this and adopt some of it and I will be knocking on his door to ensure that he does look at this. I'll, I'll be asking him when I see him personally whether he's read this report because I think it's something that the Labour front bench, it's not my position, it's not my role to tell Tom what to do because I'm on in the Shepherd Treasury team, but I will be, I will be actively encouraging him to read this uh, in depth. Um, I think finally, um, moving away from the kind of Bertian approach. If you read Tom's book, you'll, you'll kind of see the detail how the kind of post-war consensus was <coughs> destroyed by the former Director General John Burke. Is he here? I think he's one of But he is, I can tell you now, John. Um, but John Burke basically was Thatcher's man inside the BBC, and he broke the back of the BBC. So he broke the, the kind of post-war welfare state consensus, the, the public sector consensus that was there and move the BBC onto a more neoliberal commercial uh, footing. That needs to be challenged, it needs to be stopped. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example of, of where that kind of, how it manifests. You may, at the end of the night, if you're listening to the BBC, you may hear, um, we have business correspondents. They've kind of developed quite recently. Uh, we don't really have labour correspondents, we don't, but we have business correspondents. And obviously it's very important that we have the voice of business. And I know, in my own region, when we were cutting correspondence on health, on education, the one that survived was the business correspondent. And I think that tells you a lot about the focus and priority of that kind of neoliberal footing that BBC found itself on. But if you go to bed at night, you know, it's, it's very subtle in how they're telling you that this is very important. What the needs of business are very, very, of course they are. We all rely on business. I'm not anti-business. What I'm saying is the fact that it, we end the night with what the FTSE index is at mm -hmm. tells you something about what the priorities of the BBC are and what we think what they think we think should be important. And that's a key thing. The BBC sets the parameters for what is possible. Our media sets the parameters for what is possible. I remember when uh, Jeremy Corbyn was, um, was, was, was running his leadership campaign. And this was, I'll finish on this now, because it's kind of ticking on, but uh, it, was, it was the day that Tony Blair decided to intervene in the first leadership election. And Jeremy Corbyn was in a room, and Jeremy Corbyn's campaign hadn't been taken off. And he was in some kind of dank hall in London talking about his economic proposals. And over the other side of the city, unbeknownst to him, Tony Blair has called a press conference with the well with literally you know, the country's media and has lambasted Corbyn. And it's still in his speech where he said, Listen to your head, not your heart, the Labour members. Don't go down this path. And it, I remember there's a picture of Jeremy coming out of this building thinking he was going to be speaking to the the Islington Gazette about his economic policies. <laughs> well, what's me? Because he's crazy, guys. Well, to me, you're like, Jeremy, Jeremy, what do you think about what Tony Blair said? And, and to his credit, you know, he's really statesmanlike. He said, oh, it's quite harsh, but, you know, I'm saying, this is what we're saying. And he, he was like that. And they were like, oh. And I remember, um, I was asked to go on that. I was a member from the Lord, so I won't say who it was. And, and he was basically saying, it's madness, it's madness, it's madness, and stop. And um, they, they ran a package quite went on. And, um, they had the BBC journalist uh, interviewing someone, a box, and they said, what do you think about... This? No, it wasn't a box, it was about someone from Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, who was supporting Jeremy Corbyn. And you actually heard the reporter go, ha, ha, did you think Jeremy Corbyn can win? <laughs> and I, so I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, you know, to, the, to someone at home, they would be thinking, well, the reporter's laughing at this, it's impossible. And that set the parameters 
for what was possible. And that's what the BBC does. It sets the parameters for what's possible. It's quite an invisible power that it has. And I think that's why it's so important that the BBC does come back under you know, transparent, democratic, accountable control to the public. Uh, away from politicians, I don't want a state broadcaster. I want a public. Thank you.